Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Haas Talk Boss. I am here with Steve Hoffman, VP of Engineering here at Percona. I'm also here with potentially the lawn guys. So if you hear lawnmowers outside, it's because, you know, they have decided to curse me once again with, you know, podcast visitors outside. But hopefully they will disappear shortly. So how are you, Steve? I'm doing spectacular, Matt. How are you today? I am good. I am good. So many of you may have not met Steve before, but Steve's been here for, um, what, about two years now? Two years, two years, yeah. Two years. Two full years at Percona. And Steve runs the engineering teams. And so his job is to make sure that all the software that you guys are trying out and using is uh, stable and performant and has all the features that you want. So, you know, when uh, you have something that you need, you know, Steve is the guy who helps get the team to, you know, prioritize it. Steve's the guy who makes your life, you know, wonderful and hell at the same time. So congratulations, Steve. <laughs> I think I think if you ask the team, they would tell you Steve only does the part that makes your life hell. They do the stuff that makes your life wonderful. But if you want to give me credit for making lives wonderful, I will take it. All right. Fair enough. So so, Steve, um, you've been doing engineering for work for quite some time. And uh, Percona is a little different than your background. Right. So you've done a lot of SaaS apps. You've done a lot of different applications. But coming to Percona and jumping into this, you know, deep open source experience, deep, you know, like remote work across the globe contributors. I mean, maybe talk to us a little bit about the difference that you've experienced that you've come here, like like from a classic engineering job that you've had in the past to this new kind of thing. What, what was that like? Well, I mean, it, the, the shock for me was, um, well, I'm, I've never shipped software to a user, right? We've always delivered it via the web. And so the constraints that I wasn't prepared for, like number one, we don't have to have installation instructions. And, you know, it seems so so simple in hindsight, but like your mind just glosses over so many points because you've done the install half a dozen times on your own. And so it's just, oh, do step one, step two, step three. And when you go to write it down, it's sort of that classic, you know, having, you know, have kids document making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich where, you know, they forget to say, take off the lid and stick the knife with the butter spreading end in first. Like all of those things that we take for granted, we miss. Um, the, the other side is like, you have to put twice as much effort into being correct on the first try. Uh, as I, as I learned the hard way, once we ship it, it's really hard to unring that bell. So, uh, a bug, uh, some incomplete package, uh, a case that we hadn't considered becomes kind of a ticking time bomb and, and we don't have the ability to go user by user and, and sort of force them to upgrade. Right. It's, it's sort of, how can we put that information in front of them as quickly as possible? Uh, so, you know, we spend a lot of time, you know, covering the different mediums when we do it in the apps themselves as best we can, but then on our forums and, you know, blog posts, just any way to announce, you know, Hey, there's a new version and it fixes something we missed on the last pass. Oops. Um, and then probably the last big one for me is the idea of, of breaking changes. Um, you know, we, we, Open source, I've never created open source software, been a big part of consuming open source, certainly like to give back in the open source, but like this, we're actually putting it out there and, you know, releasing open source software, people find new and creative ways to use it, which we don't always plan for. Um, 
but that creates sort of an obligation to keep it as consistent as we can. So, you know, where I'm told on a couple instances, well, oh, when in the SaaS world, we did it this way. So we should just convert everything over to that way. Like, well, yeah, but it's twice as much work because we still have to maintain the old one. I'm like, why? They're like, well, because people have built it into their automation, to their continuous integration environments. Like, we can't just change this unless you're ready to increment to another major version. Like, uh, oh, okay. So, so those were some of the differences. Like, those took a little bit of getting used to before I finally came to terms and stopped fighting the fact that, um, you know, there, there are two different models for software delivery. Each has their pluses and each has their, um, we'll call them little surprises. Now, we've got a very diverse engineering staff across the world. And, you know, that's always a challenge to manage. You know, uh, how, how have you kind of, what are some tips and tricks you can give to others who are starting this? Because now everyone's kind of gone remote because of COVID. And, you know, now whether they go back to the office or not, eh, maybe not. Yeah. Um, and so I'm sure that there are a lot of people out there who are looking for that kind of expertise, especially in the engineering area where it's like, I used to have guys who all sat in a bullpen. We all worked together. We, we, you know, we got together with a whiteboard. We drew out what we wanted. Now we don't. Yeah. Well, I mean, tip number one, if you're not funny in your native language, you're even less funny in 34 different languages. So anybody who's thinking about managing a globally diverse team, take that one to heart. I'm glad um, I'm funny in 68 different languages. Well, I'm still working on the first one, but, but I hope saying. to get there someday. No, I know. That's why I appreciate your mentorship. I, it's helped me tremendously. Um, but, you know, ex ex exactly what you said, uh, you know, with so many different cultures represented, there's just subtle little differences. Uh, you know, I expressions that, that are common, especially in the U.S. Like I, I've used this one on more than one occasion. I actually spend more time explaining globally what a Monday morning quarterback is than people just getting what it's. I mean, obviously the whole team knows it now because I, I have explained it so many times, but um, those little uh, idioms, I guess, that we use don't always translate. And sometimes we just shoot right over them. So, uh, you know, hit a home run, right? Hit a home exactly. run with this one. Hit a home you run. Know. Oh, yeah. 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 And I don't get most of the soccer references. What a either, swing and a miss, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All, all of those. Um, and like you said, I, I do miss uh, elements of not having everybody in the room. I think, you know, the, the, the thing I liked about NG, well, I'll put it this way. Uh, last couple offices I've worked at uh, fell in love with these open office floor plans, which I'm going to suppress my opinion on them. But one of the benefits that they had is sort of everybody in the same area. And if two devs were talking over here and you were talking with somebody over here, you could kind of hear and say, hang on, hang on. Oh, hey, I think we're talking about something similar, right? And everybody swing their chairs to the middle, quick powwow, move right past whatever issue we're, we're, we're facing at the time. Um, that's, that's almost impossible right now. Like, you know, with all digital meetings, um, we can't talk over each other. So there can really only be one conversation going on at a time. Uh, we, we are busier than ever. I don't know how every other company is, but for Kona, we're busier than ever. And so, you know, if it's very easy to get uh, sort of the meeting fatigue and, well, you know, this really went not really about me. So I'll just focus on the stuff that I need to get done and I'll keep one ear open, which basically is saying I'm not listening at all. So, I mean, some of those challenges I think are, are significant, right? And 
the other side, um, which you know we we learn probably as a result of the the pandemic, is um, Percona had has done a great job at really making sure that while we're a fully remote workforce, we still make the personal connections. Right? We still we still have opportunity to get together face to face. You know, have a drink, tell some jokes, have some laughs, watch you know watch people go by, and. The pandemic has hurt that, and I don't think we realize just how vital that is in the grand scheme of things. You know that that it's such a significant part of relationship building and, and delivering software because, you know, for one, all the teams at Percona Engineering have a sort of a, a creator and consumer relationship, right? You know, the, the product, the PMM product, consumes our our database software. Our operators consume the database software. We work with our backup software, so all of these things have these interrelationships. So we, you know, we we have to have those connections because it, you know, it's easy to stop and say, "Well, I did my part." You know, I I did task A, B, and C. I don't know what happens to it next. We'll just ship it on down the line, and someone else will deal with it. So, you know, those are just some of those challenges, and none of them are unsolvable. But I think you know, they they take just a little bit of extra time and energy to think about what the best solutions are and sort of not stopping there and, you know, keeping an open right. mind to things change. Maybe there are better solutions. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I know, Steve, you, you have had many great experiences, you know, remotely and in the office, but there's one experience that I have to ping you about, about the office, right? Now, 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 now the other week, Steve and I went to lunch. It was Percona's 15th anniversary. And he was shocked that I knew this story. But it seems that, you know, Steve was also not only in charge of engineering, but he was also in charge of physical security at the office because he was the biggest guy at the office. Um, Steve being a hockey player and a hockey coach. Uh, so, so Steve, um, you know, just to kind of set up, you know, this story, you know, Steve's running engineering. He's got, uh, I call it a data center. He calls it a closet, but it's a room. It's a room. And uh, one day he comes in to find what, Steve? A squatter. <laughs> so for those of you who aren't familiar with a squatter, Steve, you know, like comes into the office. They're noticing things missing over a few week period. The different things that are odd. Right. Right. Is that, is that how it went? Not quite. Not quite. I'll, I'll back up. So so we're, we're like early 2000s, very small startup uh, renting some some office space um, and our. I believe at this point we had finally stepped up to like a real data center for our production stuff, but like all of our non-production stuff and even some of our backup stuff all ran out of the office. You know, we, we had a, I think we had a T3 installed at the time. And so we had decent bandwidth back and forth between the primary data center. At any rate, we took the front closet of the office and we put an old medical equipment, uh, like an imaging server rack. And we just put all of our, non-production stuff and our backup site stuff in there. And we called it a day. Um, you know, these were old compact ProLiant servers. They generated a ton of heat. They were loud as all get out. So we put them as far away from anybody as we possibly could. We didn't have a receptionist. So it was just sort of like eh, convenient. Um, we had good monitoring, right? So I wasn't actually running engineering at the time. I was uh, the, like this, the lead sysadmin, the IT manager for the group. And um, I got, I was getting pages. And I couldn't figure out what the pages were. At night, 
because it was controlled by a, you know, a, a, a landlord or whatever, the, the building management company, the heat shut off at night or it lowered to a certain temperature, the lights shut out so that they would conserve uh, electricity, wouldn't leave it on all night. Um, and it was relatively cold outside, but I'm getting uh, alerts that said that the server room is overheating or our, our network closet, for lack of a better term, is overheating. And so, you know, I live 25 minutes away, so I tried my damnedest to avoid it as long as possible. Um, and to make a long story short, I went into the office and, you know, badged in, got through the front door and I look and I, I can see the, the, the ventilation system that I had sort of, uh, installed with my jigsaw and a, and a Home Depot grate, um, was blocked on the inside with cardboard. Uh, and I couldn't, it didn't make any sense to me. And so as soon as I opened the door, there was a person in there living in there, living in the office and, and went into that room for warmth. And we didn't keep it locked. We were a small company. Nobody, you know, everybody knew it was in there and it was nothing exciting. So, uh, yep. Ran, ran down the hallway, like a scared little person and screamed out, like, I'm going to call the police if you don't get out. And unbeknownst to us, they had sort of been hiding out there for a while, uh, maybe not weeks or months, but, uh, I went back and, you know, some rudimentary footage that we had, you could see they just sort of wandered in one day, uh, again, unmonitored door during the day and found a place to camp out. We just, we just didn't go in there often enough to know, uh, until, until the overheat page came. So yeah, that was my, that was my scariest moment probably ever, uh, you know, office now, but space wait, that night. Wait, you're missing some of these important pieces here. Now you had to bribe this person to leave. Well, I mean, there was a, a certain threatening with the police, which we thought was the more enticing one. There was a, a bribe of food, you know, we'll. But wasn't that what food. finally sealed the deal is you had to it, give her your sandwich? It was. Well, no, I had, to, I, had to, I had to buy it. I had to actually go get it. We had a we had a there's a Bojangles up the road that was open till like, you know, 2 a.m. or something like that, which is the only thing that was open in the park at that time. And so actually okay, I'll go out this far. And so got the person into the, to the lobby of the, of the uh, office. Like, so they, they wouldn't leave the building, but they would at least leave the lobby so I could lock the door. And it was sort of on my honor. And I went and got the sandwich, came back and, you know, got a, a bag of, of, uh, I guess it was Bojangles biscuits. Um, I don't remember exactly what I got, but I know that's, that's how we were able to, uh, to clear the premises. No police were called. Um, and and that's that's how it went down. And and now you know, like I mean, this is this is pre a lot of the the physical security issues that people really you know uh, changed a lot of their policies and everything else. But um, you know, that's just that's one of those stories that you're like, yeah, that that's kind of why you have to have those you know watch who badges in after you and you know what you know tries yes. to walk in after you and oh you know, we we implemented all kinds of security policy after that. I, I had. Just a, a very basic webcam that was taking a, a picture every minute, and we call it a day. And I, I learned really quick to use a couple of open source tools to string that together into a video and play it. Basically, I could watch the entire overnight um, in about in about three minutes every morning, so that I could see did anything happen overnight that we should be worried about. Uh, and as the software improved, we were able to do basic motion detection, which uh, I did end up shutting off because every time a car would pull into the roundabout, their headlights would shine through and it was just enough change because there was no heat sensing or anything like that. It was just enough change to trigger it. And uh, so, you know, again, the whole purpose was for me to sleep easy at night, not get up every 15 minutes. So 
Uh, yeah, we had better badging. We had uh, we put you know card access on the server room or network closet door, whichever you want to call it. Um, video cameras in a lot more places. Uh, yeah, it definitely changed the way that we treat security in in that small company. We had just sort of taken it for granted up to that point. It didn't. It, I suppose that the follow on is it only helped to a certain extent, right? We put all of our protections around the off hours and we didn't really do anything different during the day and the doors auto unlocked at 8 a.m. So uh, on more than one, well, one specific occasion, I think it was two times we had a, a um, art vendor uh, with sort of a portfolio of artwork who would just beeline to the back of the building. And I, the one day I remember seeing her kind of blow by my door because I was towards the front, but not in the front. And of course, she goes right back to like the CEO or the CTO's office or something like that and is trying to sell art. And they're like, can you please get this person out of here? So I'm trying to pull this wonderfully nice lady who had, had not been able to shower in quite some time down the hall. And, you know, she pull away from me and, you know, stop in the next office and try and sell something like, you can't stay, you've got to get out. So uh, the next evolution was making sure that our uh, badging system did not auto unlock the doors and said we had a little press for service button so that we could capture all that. So yeah, we, we evolved quickly. I Fail forward. Imagine. I mean, you, you'd have to, you'd have to. And you, you know, over, over the time, right. You know, you, you, you've evolved <laughs> not only your security, but you know, you, you've kind of moved into different areas. So, you, you know, back then it was the early days, you know, a little bit of the wild, wild West. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you've, You've matured as a as a as a leader, and you know I think all of our security standards as a as a matured. So you know, hopefully, you know we don't see that type of thing happen too often at many companies. But you know, coming in, you know, over those years, you know, those early days, when did you start to really focus on building your applications using you know the open source stack or using components of? It probably was in about 2010. I had I joined a company that that you know they did email distribution was what they did. So they built sort of email distribution software, and you know I had already been you know a, a big tinker, a lot of programming on PHP, um, and so new elements of it. But like that company showed me bringing all these different pieces together, how much it accelerates the development process. You know, I think um, I've been at a couple organizations where it was sort of, we, you know, we pride ourselves on um, doing it all ourselves and you just, it's so inefficient, right? You just don't have, you don't, number one, you don't have access to the things that you want to change. You can't make them better because you're sort of getting an off the shelf solution. I spent quite a bit of time, you know, working for, for the state of North Carolina and, almost all of our solutions were, this is what you get, right? We're going to give you the binary CD. You're going to load it. You're going to run it. You're going to agree to the terms of service and that's it. And, you know, tweaks and tunes just were not on the menu. Um, so I think at that company, I started seeing the real value of not just using open source software for the smaller things that needed to accomplish, but really the big things that you needed to accomplish and how you could take three or four different products put them together and get this amazing result. Um, you know, and, and, and again, you know, I think it also showed me that it comes with a, with an element of responsibility, right? You can, you can consume all your life. There's no requirement to give back. Um, but I think for me, there was always a reward in, you know, monitoring the forums and someone asking a question. I, I remember there one was about, you know, integrating with multiple active directories and it just like, 
holy cow, like I, I had to do this for my company. We got bought by another company, merged our two systems together, but we still had lots of fragments. So we needed both employees from both entities to be able to get into the services. And so I just modified the code and it just didn't dawn on me. That was like the, the, the aha moment was, okay, here you go. Like I'll, I'll submit a PR. We didn't call them PRs at the time, but um, I'll submit a PR to get this out there. And lo and behold, it gets picked up. And now it's sort of the, I think they've since rewritten it, but it was, it became a mainstream option. And this was a, a WordPress plugin for, for integrating with Active Directory at the time. So it was really cool to see how that works. And now at a place like Percona, the entire business is built around that model, right? Not just, not just consuming, but consuming, sharing freely, giving back, you know, taking input, working with people, enabling them to do things themselves. And, um, sort of, I don't know, without, without your hand open, like, you know, okay, I, I helped you. What are you, you know, what are you going to do without that constraint? It actually makes it freer, more, more enjoyable to do it. So now, you know, so, so you mentioned that, that, that early time and you mentioned, you know, Percona and, you know, giving freely. Now your, your first kind of jump into Percona was, Here's PMM, make it better, right? Yep. Like, like your priority is PMM. So Percona Monitoring Management. Yeah. And, you know, Percona Monitoring Management has a pretty lofty vision in the future. Maybe tell us a little bit about where we, you know, view PMM evolving to. Um, and then, then maybe talk to us a little bit about some of those challenges in getting us from where we are today to there. Well, I mean, if I start... Two years ago, um, when when I when I was in, entrusted the PMM product, um, you know PMM stands for Percona Monitoring and Management, but there was zero management, so it was just Percona Monitoring. Like you couldn't actually do anything to the systems that you monitored. Uh, you could you could only learn that there was something not right. Um, and so one of our biggest transitions is we're really emphasizing putting that second M into the product line so that we can do management. And we started with, um, you know, an external integration with an alerting system so that you could take more proactive measure. Now we've built that into uh, the tool and we've now actually just released a technical preview of uh, backup management where we can take uh, partner with some of the existing Percona suite, Percona extra backup and Percona backup for Mongo. And you can now... Uh, kickoff backups right there in PMM, which I think is a huge component of systems management. Um, you know, backups is one of those unsexy things that no one gets excited about until they really, really need it and find out that they didn't have a great backup strategy to begin with. So um, that's, you know, that's part of our vision is, is number one, adding that second M. Um, and then the other side of it is sort of, you know, helping move the market in a new direction. You know, a big piece for the PMM product is uh, its database as a service offering. And, and so we're really excited to be building that because I think that's a big enabler for all the people who don't care about what it takes to get a, a, a good setup of a database running. They just, my application needs a port to connect to. I don't care if it's MySQL, Postgres, or Mongo. I just, I just want to connect my app to the database and, and do my thing please shortcut that. And so, you know, Amazon, I think, is the gold standard for what they've done with RDS. Um, the problem is there's, a, there's quite a few trade-offs with that. And, and the big trade-offs are um, Amazon maintains control of the infrastructure. And, and as, a, as a systems person from way back, the, you know, there were four vital statistics that I needed 
to help me understand really where the root of the problem are. So if I can't see CPU, memory, disk IO and network load, those without those things, I really can't make a full determination of where do I focus my energy in fixing? And, and an example I had given to someone the other day was, um, you know, as simple as CPU can be hundred percent pegged, but the solution is different if a hundred percent of that is in user space or if it's in system space or if it's even in uh, IO weight. So, you know, th- those things have correlations and they sort of determine where you go next in your investigative path to, to resolve problems. So, you know, PMM's database as a service offering actually enables customers to have to maintain that control, right? So, so you can actually use the limited, unlimited scalability of something like Amazon or Google to uh, load your databases on there and sort of extract that away. Your end user just, I just want MySQL, uh, four nodes, uh, this much memory, this much CPU. Give me a connection string, get out of my hair, and and. You know, I think we're helping bring that. And then on the flip side, when something goes wrong, your systems people, your DevOps folks, your your database people have the ability to that raw access or that raw data that will help them pinpoint the problem and, and go through the refinement process of either correcting it in software, correcting it in hardware or configuration. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that ultimate vision of being able to enable people is important, right? Yeah. I mean... PMM already has quite a bit of functionality that enables people to find those problem areas or those issues. So it's really taking it to the next step, if you will. That's it. That's it. And, and we're not stopping there, right? I mean, I think, you know, I'm talking more about sort of what's in flight right now. But at the end of the day, I mean, we, you know, if, if Percona's reputation is around sort of our credibility in the market space, telling people good, what is good practice, what is good decision making, we're trying to speed that delivery up through things like, what I, you know, I wouldn't call it artificial intelligence, but programmed intelligence advisors that will be constantly monitoring your system and looking for little optimizations. Could you change configuration? Could you uh, maybe modify this query some? Is there a, uh, a better system profile that would give you better performance and throughput? Like just little things like that, that we can, that we can be always monitoring for. And with a cloud delivery model, as new ones come out, no action required on your part. Just, you know, yesterday we didn't know we had this potential lurking problem. And today there's a suggestion that says, you know, with just a couple more gigabytes of, of memory allocated to, to your database, uh, which your system already has, by the way, you should be able to get additional performance overhead on your, uh, on your database queries. So things like that. Okay. And when you are talking to, you know, one of the things I know a lot of people want, um, contributions. They want to help with, you know, different pieces of software. Um, you know, the open source space is very vibrant and uh, very active, but a lot of people have fear that they're not good enough to contribute or they're not good enough to work at, you know, a company, you know, whether it's us or another open source company that they, they, they feel a little shy to, you know, go out there and, uh, you know, help people out or to, you know, to contribute or work at that company. I know that there's some of the smartest people I know, you know, who have worked at Percona. They've said, you know, hey, for, you know, I, I waited three years before I even applied because I just wasn't good. Enough. Right. Or you see, there's that mentality that that almost imposter syndrome, if you will, from good developers. When you are looking at people who are, you know, contributing a lot of code, who are, you know, um, being able to push a project like this forward, um, whether it's internal or external, what sort of, you know, 
key things do those people have? Like what what are the 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 markers, if you will, that you look for that so you say, hey, that person really, you know, that they they've got it. Um, yeah. I, 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 can I can I give credit to to someone who who of taught course. it to me? So sure. I, I worked for a CTO named Ralph Kasuba. Um, this is back at the email delivery company, and he had this philosophy on hiring that you looked first at attitude, then at aptitude, and then dead last at ability. And that what I've learned, you know, the, the part that he left out is that you know the right attitude that, that I can get things done, that there is no insurmountable challenge and the right aptitude, just being able to piece together the things that I do know and apply them to a problem that I don't know, that can actually overcome the vast majority of challenges. And if you focus there and hire those people, bring them on board, that solves an awful lot. Now, the ability is, is uh, sort of a piece of it, you know, but I think High attitude, high aptitude does a lot to overcome modest ability. So in many cases, you don't need to be a super senior, which I think that's a struggle that, that every company I've ever worked at with is just always, we need to hire the most senior of the senior of the smart of the smart. Um, but like, let's be fair. Sometimes those people come with baggage in the form of arrogance and that's tough. That hurts a team. You'd rather have people with the right attitude and the right aptitude with a little bit of investment, with a little bit of wiggle room and freedom to, to grow, do amazing things. And even I've seen that even here at Percona, you know, this is something that stuck with me since what, 2011. Uh, and I have brought it to every company that I've had a leadership role at. And I, I believe almost all of them are still doing it today. And, and like I said, I just, it's just such a wonderful way to look at, at sort of people um, because you give them a lot more benefit of the doubt. And when People feel like they're being trusted. That that whole fear of I'm not good enough and I'm not smart enough. If you can, you know, give them the confidence to just take a stab at it, be blown away with what they can produce. And I think that's what, what you see a lot of Perconians are right that that thought they weren't smart enough. Uh, most people probably said, well, if you can't answer this super complex question on the spot, you're probably not smart enough. Instead of saying, Use whatever resources are at your disposal. You know, figure figure it out. Take a take a stab. Right. You know, it's that curiosity. It's the it's the you know willingness to try things, but also be humble about it. Exactly. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think that's and and other people want to work with that, right? Like I I get my the biggest energy from a good collaborative environment where we can bounce off ideas and we can say stupid things and people will say. Mm, I don't think you want to chase that one down. And you're like, yeah, you're probably right. I was just talking out loud. You know, where, whereas I've been in other environments where it was crickets because nobody wanted to be the one to throw out uh, a suggestion that might be interpreted as dumb. And therefore, no dumb ideas were ever spoken, but also very few good ideas were ever spoken. So, you know, there, there's a big trade off there. And I think if you start building that collaboration and that trust and you have the right uh, sort of cultural mindset, of, of we're going to achieve this together, you know, you get great things from it. And with that, you know, um, what sort of contributions or, or how, what, what kind of things are you looking for, for, you know, people to contribute back to whether it's PMM or one of the other projects? I mean, as a engineering, you know, the, the head of engineering here, I'm sure that there's a litany of things that you want and everybody always assumes it's going to be like, ah, it's this complicated thing, but really what are you looking for the most? Uh, you know, let's take, 
We'll take anything. I think people, are, because because Percona is a business, right? A, a money-making business that that we're only interested in things that directly support our roadmap. Well, that's that's nice. I'm certainly not going to say no if you want to work on something that that we also want to work on. But at the end of the day, you know what we want is the satisfaction of knowing that we've built an extendable enough product that can support what you need to accomplish at the same time as what Percona is trying to accomplish. So. I'm always curious to see which directions people are taking it. Some things belong on our roadmap and we never thought to put them there because we didn't know. In other instances, um, you know, we're just, we're not going down that route, but I think we like helping people give them sort of a, here, look at, this is how we solved it for this. Maybe that'll give you a head start on that. No, by the way, if you want, throw it at us and you can save somebody else the effort. Again, it's not priority for us, but that's how we're going to get to that end goal of being able to support multiple configurations and have lots of options is by welcoming it. And it doesn't just have to be code contribution. I mean, I, I told you the very biggest problem that I had in joining an open source company that shipped software was documentation. E- even if you find a typo or a mistake, or, you know, we glossed over some steps that saves other users hours. And we, we are sometimes blind to that. We just, I know the steps because I've done them so many times, I don't read the instructions anymore. So the fact that one new step popped in there, all I have to do is mentally insert step 7A after 7, and I'm good. And if it doesn't make it into the documentation, we don't know. So contributions can be as simple as, hey, uh, you missed a step in the documentation, or you had a typo, or this was referring to an old version, went ahead and fixed that for you. Uh, and here's you know here's the, the link to the PR. Love it. I mean, that to me, that's being a part of, of the community, right? There's you can contribute in so many different ways, be it bringing ideas to light, just log them in Jira. We would love to see this. Fixing documentation, contributing code that we're working on, contributing things that only you care about. All of this is, is you know, all pieces to that bigger puzzle of open source software. I think the other one that people don't realize that is probably the goal or the oil of the engineering is feedback. Simply mm-hmm. telling us how you view something, how you perceive it, why it works or doesn't work, or how it could be better. Even right. if you can't code anything or contribute anything technical, just saying like, this doesn't make sense. You know, yeah. this is how I think you should approach it. This is how I've seen other people do it. It's such valuable feedback. Oh, totally. And and I think what I like is seeing how other people are getting it too. You know, we I mean, here we kind of rely on people submitting feedback via Jira bug reports or improvement requests, feature requests. Um, we have our forums, so we you know we're, we you know we try to keep our teams very active on the forums. We have our Discord channel that you know that we again fairly active from our engineers. That we we just understanding what people are trying to accomplish helps us hone in on it. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you, you know, it we. We think we're reasonably accurate in what we're trying to do, but these are just highly educated guesses and getting that feedback about the problems being solved and why they're important and what you're really trying to accomplish. If nothing more than that, it either gives validation to our direction or it helps nudge us a few ticks to the left or right so that we can sort of readjust focus and make sure that, you know, I, it's not about being Steve's baby or even Peter's baby, you know, in, in terms of a product that we deliver. It's does it satisfy and meet the needs of the people on the other end of the keyboard 
That's who we build the software for. Doesn't, doesn't matter if it's a database server, backup software, operator, monitoring tool, like it's got to meet your needs. Otherwise, anything we do is just pumping our own chests out. Yeah. You got to get enjoyment out of it. You got to get useful use out of it. All right, Steve, thank you for stopping by, chatting with us a little bit, telling us a little bit about your background and about where PMM's headed and how we can all help. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was far less painful than I thought it would be. Always less painful than you thought it would be. <laughs> In fact, the crowd loves it. <laughs> yeah. See me squirm. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Wow, what a great episode that was. We really appreciate you coming and checking it out. We hope that you love open source as much as we do. If you like this video, go ahead and subscribe to us on the YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And of course, tune in to next week's episode. We really appreciate you coming and talking open source with us.